Good morning. And our children, yes, they know it's time for their Bible lesson. Your children are also welcome to stay with you. And if you've not sent your children down before, you're welcome to take them and meet the workers and check out the location and then come back up here and join us. As we celebrate womanhood, especially mothers, I want us to stop and pause and consider some very encouraging truths found in this short Old Testament book. It's only one of two books named after a woman. Esther is the other one, and then also the book of Ruth. Let's look to the Lord in prayer before we look at this book. Heavenly Father, we do praise your great name. We were reminded last week and maybe already this morning how much we need your mercy and your grace. The renewed cleansing of our sin that restores fellowship with you. Lord, we praise you for your unconditional love, your grace beyond measure, your long-suffering, your wisdom, and your care for us. Even when we as your children act like the mule and the horse, we are warned not to be like that need bit and bridle to keep them near. We thank you that you are a good God, worthy of our worship, worthy of our trust because you are fully trustworthy. Lord, open the eyes of our heart. Help us to understand this book in the revelation of your entire word as it points to your Son, our Savior, our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. The book of Ruth simply invites us to consider how God might be involved in the day-to-day difficulties and mundane stuff uh, that every human life is composed of. It's exactly what Ruth puts before you in four beautifully designed chapters. God is, and we need to be reminded of this, God is not only the God of the spectacular and amazing and miraculous, but also the God of the simple and the ordinary. The reason we need to remind one another of that is because every day we will underwhelm ourselves. And most of your days will be ordinary, maybe even boring, not spectacular and amazing. Moms certainly as much as any need to be reminded of this truth. You know, this book, as I was studying it and reading it over and over, this book could have easily been called the book of Boaz or the family redeemer. It could have even been called Naomi, but it's called Ruth. You'll see in chapter 4 that Ruth then becomes the great-grandmother of King David that points to another in the future. Beautifully book, rightly deserves to bear this name. There are three main characters. Many of you are already familiar with this book. Uh, There is Naomi. She is the Israelite widow, but the book does not start with her as a widow. There's Ruth, the foreign Moabite widow, but the book does not start with her as a widow either. And then there is Boaz, an Israelite farmer. But the message of the book actually transcends these three human characters, and the message is much more profound. So I'm trying to craft these statements away from the personal names of the three main characters in a way that it applies to you and me. So first of all, here's the book of Ruth in a snapshot. Difficulty and disappointment, chapter one. 
or the word emptiness is used. Have you ever felt, have you ever defined life like that? Okay, in chapter 2 and 3, you have redemption. Or we might put aside that word redemption, hope. So we move from emptiness to hope. And then finally, joyfulness. And the actual word that you're going to see unpacked in chapter 4 is fullness. And so you have this, this move from emptiness to a redeemer and hope to fullness. And then the profound piece And it's strange for such a short book to end this way. It actually ends with a genealogy. Almost like, why is that there? And it's intended, I think, to surprise you and to actually take your focus in your emptiness and point you to a future hope. Okay, let's look at this. Let's look at chapter one. Difficulty and disappointment. Look at Ruth one, verse one. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. That sets the historical framework, though exciting to read about. I mean, many of you enjoy reading the book of Judges. You have Othniel, you have, you have Barak, you have Deborah, you have Samson. Maybe he's one of the most popular ones of all the judges. But what you understand when you read through the book of Judges is they were violent times. Gritty, horrific, disappointing, marked by unfaithfulness. That's where this book is set, right in the midst of of a a wider hardship and difficulty. Judges 21-25 actually describes that time period. It's the very last book or the very last verse of the book of Judges. Listen to what it says in Judges 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Can you think of any other culture that could be described with that last phrase of the book of Judges? You were born into a specific time period in history. You were not born into the period of the judges, but you were born by design into a specific time period in history. You didn't get to choose who your parents were. You didn't get to choose in what place you were born, what country, what state, or what year. For me, it was Robert Lee Hafler and Linda Schomburg Hafler, my mom and dad. In Doylestown, Pennsylvania, in 1993. Okay. 1968. Does that sound more accurate? That, that's where God placed me, the third child of my parents, with two older sisters. That was his design for me. You were born into a specific time in history on purpose. And the world and our culture is trying to remove purpose from your life. That everything is random. And everything is left up to chance. There was a quote last week where we said, if there is no center, there is no circumference. And God in his providence and his sovereignty has placed you in a specific time, place and geographical location in history. For me, it was God's kindness shown to me in his providence. Here we are introduced to an Israelite family that has been placed in a specific place. Uh, part of the world. Look at Ruth chapter one, and then we'll go into verse two. He is a man of Bethlehem and Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons, the name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So we have real people 
in a real historical context in the times of the judges. Now, let's add another difficulty. Go back to Ruth chapter one, verse one. There was a what in the land? There was a famine in the land. And so they go into Israel's known sworn enemies, the Moabites. They go from a famine in this one particular area of the world, Bethlehem, into Israel's enemies to find sustenance. It's ironic because of a famine, a family from Bethlehem. Some of you know this. Bethlehem means house of bread. And yet now there's no Lehem in Bethlehem. It's actually the Hebrew would be changed to Bethra'av, which means house of famine. And yet God used that difficulty to move this Israelite family from Bethlehem into the land of the Moabites. Circumstances beyond their control. And then add to this a third difficulty we see in the text. Look at verse 2. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. Verse 4, these took Moabite wives. After about 10 years, the husbands of Orpah and Ruth, Naomi's two sons, died. Naomi knew very well what disappointment and difficulty were like. She knew what it would be like to be a foreign widow if Orpah and Ruth followed her back to Bethlehem. So she makes plans to return to Judah. And look at verse 8 of chapter 1. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. And may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Orpah agrees to remain behind. It was actually a sensible decision. She goes back to her parents. But Ruth displays remarkable and unexpected loyalty. Look at verse 16. Ruth says this. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you will go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Now, Ruth's famous words in these two verses, often they're taken out of context. I want you to understand what the commitment is here that Ruth is making to Naomi. It is a commitment of a woman to a woman, a younger woman to an older woman, a daughter-in-law to a mother-in-law, and a Moabite to a Bethlehemite. It is unexpected. It's startling, really, and it stands out. Now, these two verses are most widely used where? At weddings where they're making these vows and they're making this commitment and it's beautiful as far as poetry goes. But to use it that way, it's actually lifted out of its context because what Ruth was committing to was the fact that she was committing to a future with her mother-in-law rather than to a future with a husband. That's the commitment. The context is difficulty and disappointment. Somehow the sovereignty of God and the providence of God can seem unfair, even cruel. And do you know Ruth chapter 1 allows you to actually agree with that? Let's, let's, let's define that. Divine sovereignty, his supreme rule over all that is in heaven and on earth, and divine providence, the governance of God, by which he, with eternal knowledge, wisdom, and love, cares for and directs 
all things in the universe. Yet at times, his sovereign rule and his governance can seem unfair and cruel. And that's because we're looking at it through our own personal experience with a very limited view on our temporal life. I want you to sense the emotion of what is happening. Look back at verse 11 in chapter 1. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? I want you to look at the next phrase. Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Naomi thought that the only reason her daughters-in-law would follow her is that she would bring forth more sons and they would grow up and become husbands to them. That's, that's a sad statement mixed with grief and hopelessness. So she says, turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, which she doesn't, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. Look at what she says. For it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Notice the emotion. Verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Chapter 1 sets the platform for incredible difficulty and disappointment. And you have to understand that probably after 10 years living in a foreign culture, the funeral of a husband, the marriage of her sons to foreign woman, women, then the burial of two sons and the infertility of her two daughter-in-laws would have taken an incredible toll on Naomi, mentally, physically, spiritually. And this becomes clear in verses 20 to 21. Look at the text. Look at Ruth chapter 1, verse 20. She returns. They're calling out Naomi. She becomes a spectacle. But look at verse 20. She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever felt that way? Have, have you ever? Yes, you felt that way. Let me answer that. You've felt that way. I've felt that way. But have you ever felt the freedom to be that transparent about God's dealings in your life when they're so disappointing? Even good and godly women and mothers feel this way even on average days. Ruth actually gives you permission to say, this is not good. I feel like God is dealing with me in a bitter way. If you read scripture, you're going to find out that I think God is pleased when we are honest, not blasphemous, not irreverent, but honest with him. Here you have amidst the difficulty and disappointment is incredible loyalty. So even at the end of chapter one, you see this glimpse of grace where Ruth knowing she would probably remain single woman in a foreign land without the benefits of intimacy, protection, and provision, vows to stay loyal to her mother-in-law. Look at Ruth 1, verse 22. Don't miss this detail, because now the seasons, after 10 years, are starting to change. Verse 22, so Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. They left during a famine. They returned during harvest time. 
Do you know, if, if we look to the Lord, he does change seasons like that. Here the season is changing. They go from bitter circumstances to blessed conditions. That moves us into the middle section of the story, which we're not going to linger on long, because really it's the bookends of chapter 1 and chapter 4 that tell the big story. But what you have in the middle is the love story. Okay? Sean will preach that on Valentine's Day. You have redemption or hope. I want you to see this. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. That's her husband's name, whose name was Boaz. That's how chapter two starts. Totally new chapter, even a new chapter in life. Now, remember what we how we define divine providence, the governance of God by which he with eternal knowledge, wisdom and love cares for and directs all things in the universe. And that doctrine stands directly opposed to what our culture and many of our leaders are pushing, the agenda they're pushing, that it is random and by chance or by fate. It is interesting that chapter two then develops and begins with Ruth and Naomi talking about where to get food. Have you ever have you ever had that discussion? We have that discussion in our home. And we're not talking about you know, Shanahan's or Fogo de Chao, right? It's not about where to get food. It's probably more like Taco Bell or Chick-fil-A, right? Or King Super or Safeway. Have you ever had a real discussion because you have no food and you've got to go out and glean it? But you're a foreign woman, and so you don't have a right to it except by which the law states that a foreigner and a widow can go behind the gatherers and stay on the perimeter and pick up that which has fallen off. Have you ever had that discussion? We never have. We've always had food. They're in another hardship, but God has now changed the seasons and taken them out of their famine, which they actually went into in Moab and came back into harvest time. Look at verse two of chapter two. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Okay, that's faith. Ruth moving forward by faith. And she said to her, go, my daughter. And again, as we already saw, it just so happens to be the beginning of the barley harvest. And Ruth just so happens to pick grain in the field of Boaz, who just so happens to be a relative of Naomi. Divine providence seeming less bitter and less cruel as the pages turn. Is this a coincidence? I think so, because coincidence simply means the coinciding of two events. Matter of fact, the dictionary still, until they change it, says this, a remarkable concurrence of events or circumstances without apparent causal connection, yet we as God's people know there's a definite connection. Literally, it means to fall upon together or to collide. That's what's happening in the fields of Boaz. So the fact that her mother-in-law changed her name to Bitter did not mean that Ruth was designated to have that as her future. Look at how divine providence and human planning work together. Look at verse 4 of chapter 2. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Right? It's just a, a familiar exchange. Then Boaz said to his young men, 
to his young man who was in charge of the reapers. I'm going to try to say this as I think he might have. Whose young woman is this? Read with great interest, right? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Boaz is so impressed with Ruth that he does two things. First, he makes special provisions even outside of the law so that she can gather grain and have more than enough. Matter of fact, Deuteronomy 24, 19 says this. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Boaz goes above the law and makes provision provision so that she goes every time she comes to Boaz, she's empty. Every time she goes back to Naomi, she is beyond full. Boaz does a second thing. He prays for her or he blesses her. Look at verse 11. All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. Folks, sometimes you have no idea what others have said about your faithfulness and your service and your commitment, about your character. And how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Verse 12, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth goes home, tells Naomi that she met Boaz, and she, Naomi, is ecstatic. Look at verse 20. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now, here's where we've got to sort of jump into and explain a cultural practice. The law, again, in, for, the, for, for the Jews, made a provision for a family redeemer. Some of you have heard kinsman redeemer. If a man in the family died and left behind a wife or children or land, it was upon the family redeemer, the closest kin, to take up the land, to marry the widow and protect the family. Although Boaz would have never been forced to marry Ruth, He actually does so in the spirit of keeping with the law. I want to read to you a longer passage, but I want you to stay focused because it has has some striking cultural details in it. Deuteronomy 25, verse 5. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, see, he does have that option. Then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. That'd be memorable, wouldn't it? And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. 
that a great cultural little detail? The image of Redeemer now, we're going to get back to that because because Boaz has to say there's someone closer who has a a right to redeem you. And that man actually declines. Okay, the image of the Redeemer, though, in, in Ruth provides part of the background for the work of Jesus Christ. That's really where this book is pointing you to. Isaiah 53, 4 says he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. You're familiar with that. The very next chapter, Isaiah 54, verse 4 to 5, I want you to hear the wording. Okay, the suffering servant is presented. He has borne your griefs, carried your sorrows. And then it says in Isaiah 54, 4, fear not, for you will not be ashamed. You will not be confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. All of a sudden you see these glimpses of the suffering servant, the Messiah Christ, as Redeemer, who will not allow you to be disgraced if you come to him. Jesus is not of the house of him who will have his sandal pulled off, but rather who, as Galatians 3.13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus Christ actually took the shame so that you would not have to be ultimately shamed. He is a faithful redeemer. Real quick note about Boaz. Boaz was the the antithesis of the typical man in Judges who did what was right in his own eyes. Boaz did not abuse his workers, chapter 2, verse 4. He provided for their needs. You'll see that in chapter 2, verse 8 to 9 and 14 to 16. And every time Ruth came to Boaz, empty, she left full. And Boaz then gave, cared for, protected, and redeemed her under the umbrella of covenant faithfulness. He's actually a picture. He, He shows glimpses of godly character. It's challenging that in a land where every person did that which was right in their own eyes, here is a man and a woman who desired to do what was right in God's eyes. Chapter 3, interesting chapter, begins with Naomi and Ruth concocting a plan to get Boaz to notice her. The first thing Naomi says, basically, is you need to stop wearing the clothes of a widow and you have to present yourself as though you are available. It's interesting that even though Naomi was bitter at her circumstances, in chapter 3, verse 1, look at her care and protection for Ruth. She simply says that it may be well with you. She's becoming others-focused, even in her distress. Look at verse 7 of chapter 3. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet, and lay down. Again, you're entering into another cultural practice here. Uh, Ruth did not play the part of the foreign temptress who manipulated Boaz. Rather, Ruth was a worthy woman, and the whole town knew about it. Look at, look at, cha- look at chapter 3, verse 8. Because if you read this through an American lens, you're going to totally misinterpret it. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Right. This was the plan 
where he, he was threshing the barley and she moves in and he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. OK, in the English vernacular, would you marry me? The woman is asking the man to marry her. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, I love this. Do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, you then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. So basically, chapter three ends with Ruth telling Naomi that he said, yes, but but there's there's a small detail in the plan. Uh, and don't don't again misinterpret this phrase where it says there is a redeemer nearer than I. That's not Jesus. That's not Christ. Sounds great, right? Because there's one who sticks closer than a brother. No, it can't be Jesus Christ because that one who was nearer never redeemed Ruth. Okay, you got to remember that. So that's that's not an echo of Jesus Christ. It's actually an echo of the one who is going to have to endure the cultural practice of having his sandal torn off and having someone spit in his face. Look at verse 16. Chapter 3. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Naomi said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. Now, listen to what listen to Boaz's character for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. God's abundant blessings poured out for both of these women. And in chapter four, it all comes together. So look at chapter four. OK, that other family member, look at verse 12, chapter four. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I and that redeemer did not want Ruth. Look at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. Now you're starting to see the echoes of Jesus Christ who would take his bride, the church, and make her spotless and pure, both Jew and Gentile. And Boaz, as the family redeemer, married Ruth and enters into that lineage of Jesus Christ. This is all about the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ, giving to people, foreigners, those who are far away, what they don't deserve. And beyond that, abundantly and richly blessing them. The story begins with tragedy and death. It ends with joy and birth. So if, if you contrast chapter one and chapter four, you've got that middle section of the story unfolding. But if you contrast and compare chapter one and chapter four, you will see an incredible transformation. OK, over here's chapter one. Over here's chapter four. For sake of time, here's what happens. Elimelech and his family journey into Moab alone. 
In chapter four, you have 12 men, elders at the city gate. You have community to bring accountability and affirmation. Chapter one, famine. Chapter four, plenty. Chapter one, barrenness, fruitfulness, isolation, community, death, life, hopelessness, hopefulness, 10 years, nine months, a God who embitters, chapter one, verse 20, a God who blesses, chapter four, verse 14, two childless widows, shared mothering, 10 years in Moab, a 10 generation genealogy that points to Jesus Christ. That's the hope that Ruth gives, even though it takes a long time explaining the difficulty and the disappointment and the mundane and the ordinary things of life. No wonder Ruth 4 verse 14, it says this, Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. See, really, Boaz had redeemed Naomi too. And may his name be renowned in Israel. And that leads us to the surprising end of Ruth. So this In conclusion, look at verse 21. The book ends with a genealogy showing how Boaz and Ruth become the great grandparents of King David. Ruth 4, verse 21. We're just going to come right into the middle of the genealogy. Boaz fathered Obed, verse 22. Obed fathered Jesse and Jesse fathered David. Which then ties into another very important genealogy in Matthew's account of the gospel. Look at Matthew, or I'll just read Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of, and it's all about this person, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 5 of Matthew chapter 1. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, she makes it into that genealogy. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Verse 16, Matthew chapter 1. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Everyone else was the father of someone. Now you have Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. An incredible snapshot of a savior redeemer for needy people. So not only does Ruth invite you to consider how God might be at work in the ordinary, mundane details of your life right now. He is at work. And there is hope if God is in the story. But I think even greater than that, there's a picture here of Ruth approaching boldly her rightful redeemer and asking of him something. Isn't this how we come to salvation? God gives us the gift of conviction and we approach him, our savior redeemer, and we ask him to save us, redeem us, help us. And if you do that by faith alone in Christ alone, you'll experience his grace and his acceptance. Isaiah 54, four to five again, fear not for you will not be ashamed Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. And guess where he was born, according to Micah chapter 5, verse 2? Bethlehem, the house of bread, the bread of life, and there is plenty for hungry people. Let's pray.